Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege today to look into the Bible and to learn more. I'm glad to announce that today we have a full panel. And thank you for joining us all. I would like to actually welcome uh, Ken. We miss you for a number of weeks, Ken, but it's good to have you back. Thank you very much, Nick. I had a couple of weeks break and holiday, and that was really good, but good to be back on the team again. Joe, good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. It's uh, wonderful to be here again. And Will, thank you for joining. Love to be here, and uh, it's a great lesson today. Lija, also thank you for joining. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Brenton, very nice to have you with us from down south. Thank you, Nick. Uh, the study that we're going to undertake today, I believe, is a very important one. Looking forward to sharing it. And Len, thank you for preparing this uh, Bible study today. You are our facilitator. Thank you for joining. Well, thank you, Nick. And as always, hello, listeners. Today, we are doing a study on a particular quote in the book of Deuteronomy, and the quote is, For what nation is there so great? And this makes me think, what makes a great nation? And I looked up a number of sources, and I found two things that stand out. And I'm going to read one of the quotes that I came across, and it's this. A great nation recognizes the individual above every other creature or organization. And another quote says, critical to the success of both people and their nations are the values they adopt. Values influence actions, and these subsequent actions help determine life's outcomes, both in terms of happiness and financial success. So to summarize this then, a great nation, therefore, is the product of, one, recognizing the rights and responsibilities of individuals, and two, through promoting and maintaining high moral values of personal and collective conduct. On the other hand, nations built on corrupt values weak leaders and exploitation, inevitably fail. And of course, there's a lot of suffering by many people. This week, we're going to investigate God's plan to make the Israelites into a great nation. Stay tuned, because I think you'll find this very interesting. But before we launch into this subject, I invite you to join us in prayer while Ken leads us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time spent in your word. Lord, we are so privileged to be able to share it with so many others. Help us through the Holy Spirit to put forth your word with confidence and wisdom so that all who hear it will be moved to seek after Jesus and receive the wonderful blessings that await all those who are called by your name. Lord, time is moving very fast. Jesus is coming soon. The Bible signs are all around. Help us share with as many as possible this important message. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Ken. All right. Well, Will, we're going to launch out with you. And here's a question I want to ask. What was of the utmost importance 
that the Israelites were to do as they were about to enter the land they were to possess. I'd like to read uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 2, then, Lord speaking to Israel. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws that I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Verse 2 says, do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. I'm sure we'll be talking about it, Lynn, but I think it's very valuable for us to heed God's message, message not to mess with his laws and his commands. As history and our personal lives will so clearly confirm, because if we decide to change things to our own preference and do it our own way, there are dangerous pitfalls. After all, the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. If um, people would take notice of this, that Moses was talking to the Israelites at this time, and he says, follow the laws of the Lord, this would help make them a great nation. And this goes very well with what I found in a secular source, that a great nation is one that adopts good values. And here in the Ten Commandments, we see the good values that God has given. Now, we'll mention there, Lydia, that the God's commandments are not to be altered would you like to add some information about this? We have mentioned in the Bible in quite a few places in regard to the law and decrees of God, but I would like to read one of them in Psalm 19 from verse 7 to 9, which it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And in verse 10 it says, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And there is another verse in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it says that what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws. So the law of God is righteous and uh, uh, it's perfect. doesn't need to be improved and doesn't to be uh, uh, reduced. Um, so God's law is the law of liberty, the law of human rights and the law of peace for all who want to believe, for all who wants to love God and follow him, not just for the Israelites. Yes, I find it strange that some people say that God's law was done away with. And I think the verse that they use for that is um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, where it talks about the law being nailed on the cross. But it wasn't that law. It wasn't the moral law, it was the ceremonial law that was nailed to the cross. 
because it no longer applied. You don't need to uh, kill animals for, for, for the forgiveness of sin because Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, uh, negated the need to kill animals. Yes, Nick? Len, just on that aspect, uh, we may still uphold the law of God, but still not do the will of God, you know, because uh, it's one thing to just recognize the law of God and say that it's good, and it's another thing to apply it in your life. And I'll just like to mention one thing, because we are talk talking about here a great nation and how to be a great nation to represent God. I just came across uh, just recently with uh, somebody who shared with me on one of the programs I, I do on this radio station, and he said that it was proposed, even for our own na nation, to have a day of prayer for uh, the hardship we have and the difficulties with the coronavirus and all these things. And it was refused to have a day of prayer, national day of prayer. And I wonder how can we then put in place these teachings, even though our governments, you know, I mean, the parliament starts with the word of prayer and not being able to held a special day of prayer. You see, it's one thing to recognize that God is sovereign, or and it's another thing you to do the right things as God teaches. Yes, yes, Jesus um, talking about the Pharisees and so on. He said to the people, well, do what they tell you, but don't do what they do. So um, it's important when you know what is best and God's law, as religion pointed out from Psalms, is perfect. It can't be improved that uh, we should follow that law. Now, Joe, in giving his laws, God had a plan, not just to make a great nation, but a great nation, of course, is made of many people. Would you like to just share some ideas on this? Yes. Uh, there is a, a text in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, which corresponds with what Will read earlier in Deuteronomy, uh, particularly uh, chapter 4, verse 2, the se that second bit. And this is what it says. And I'll start in, in verse 17, if I may. And the spirit and the bride, that is the church, and it's not just any church, Len, um, or those who claim that they are the church, but those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. A chain of invitation, all may come. And this is God's desire that he wants to bless all people individually, and he wants to bless all nations so that they are happy and that they ultimately fulfill his plan for the salvation of as many or all who come. And the second part, it says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city 
and from the things which are written in this book. So clearly here, as was mentioned in Deuteronomy, right at the beginning of the Bible, here we have right at the end saying that you don't mess around with my word. It says all are condemned who should dare to corrupt or change the word of God, either by adding to it or taking from it. So I think here is here is the beginnings of a great nation, of a great relationship with God, great relationships between people, is that we adhere to what God's word says. When we depart from it, it's only disaster and to our own peril. Yes, how do you feel when people uh, read the words and misapply what's actually meant? Well, it says, you know, they twist scriptures to their own destruction. Yes. Now, on this particular theme, Jesus had something to say about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and so on back uh, when he walked the earth. Brenton, would you like to just share what happened in this particular occasion? Yes, we can do that, uh, Lynn. It's mentioned in two sections of Scripture, uh, Matthew 15, 1 to 6, also Mark uh, 7, 1 to about verse 12. It's dealing with a particular incident after Christ's third uh, missionary journey through Galilee. The incident recorded here, Len and panel, is in regard to ceremonial washing. It is not to do with hygiene. It is actually to do with a traditional ceremonial washing, which, for those who may not know, consisted of taking the equivalent of one and a half eggshells of water and trickling it down your fingers into the palm of your hand and then transferring it from that hand to the other hand by doing the same process. The water was not to go any lower than the wrist. Now, what's interesting about this is that this was one of the many traditions that the Jews imposed upon themselves once they came back from Babylon. And in doing so, they had become fanatics in many respects. And the reason for doing it is that you may have gone to the marketplace to buy food or whatever, and in doing so, you may have come in contact with, perish the thought, a Gentile or somebody who was ceremonially unclean. So this was your way of removing that stain, that blot, uh, by uh, practising this um, process of trickling the water over your fingers and your palm. Christ uh, spoke to them very strongly. He said that you do, um, you set aside the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition. And he talked about something that they did, which is known as Korban. He said that, um, let's say, for instance, uh, my father and mother were old and I was in a position to help them financially. All I had to do was go to the temple to the priests and say to them, my estate, my money, that I could have used or should have used for helping my parents is devoted to the temple. In so doing, I could use that money as long as I lived and there was no need for me to support my parents. He's pointing out the total inconsistency of their approach. They're arguing over ceremonial uncleanness while breaking the commandments of God, namely number five, honour your father and your mother. And Jesus is using the word hypocrite 
It comes from the Greek word hypocrite. It means one who acts or plays a role, a part. And this is, I think there's a lesson for us today. Maybe we need to apply this to ourselves in our churches, in our congregations. Do we have traditions that have no foundation other than what the fathers have done? Are they based on the word of God? Because if they're not, we need to have a close look at it. Christ is not saying they were wrong for um, this ceremonial washing. What he was saying is that they had placed it above the commandments of God. And I think that's a danger, Len, that we all face today. So we need to look closely at what we do as churches and as congregations and as groups. We need to look at is what we are practising based on the commandments of God or does it have its um, origin in tradition merely? Very well said, Brenton. I feel too that tradition is not worship. No. Tradition may enhance worship, but it's not worship. For example, uh, when I was a younger person, uh, it was traditional that women would wear hats in church. And if anybody came wearing a hat or a pair of uh, slacks, it was considered being unholy. Well, really, it wasn't at all. It's more custom and tradition. So tradition must never, ever take the place of the word of God. Then no. I'd like to add here also because um, some of the traditions in our uh, churches today, they had a, a beginning somewhere which could be reasonable, could be good. But the problem is that we are uh, focusing on those traditions. And also the tendency for us is to refuse the things which we don't agree with as a person or as a group or as even in the culture and not to look at the original things. And in this case, we are um, talking about God, the one who's leading the Israel and God gave them a lot of instructions. And I wonder why God was so particular to say to Israel these things, because God knew that they were surrounded by influence all the nations, you know, which uh, can influence it very easily, our uh, behavior. And that's one thing which I would like to, to mention here, because very often we put aside some of the good things, which we call them tradition. And we don't recognize that that can have um, a start point, which was well intended. But the way we practice it now it's away from the intention. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking about substituting other things in the place of the word of God. And um, we have an example which is coming up. But, Ken, I would like to put to you something which will probably shed light on what we'll be talking about later. You've probably bought fruit and put it in a bowl or left it in a bucket or a packet. What happens when an apple goes bad or an orange goes bad? Uh, what did you do with it and why did you do it? Well, then, I'm sure everyone at some time or another has found a piece of fruit that is in with others that has gone bad. Usually, if we spot it in time, we just remove it from the other fruit and throw it into the bin or compost heap. 
but sometimes we may not notice that it has gone bad until it's too late. Then we find it has affected all or most of the fruit around it. Then we have to discard all the fruit that has been affected as it's not usable. Now, the same thing has happened to God's people time after time. God would place them uh, somewhere and tell them not to marry or get involved with surrounding tribes as he knew they would end up following the way of the pagan tribes rather than the way of God, which they did. And the bowl of fruit is a very good example of that. Yes. Uh, Yes, Joe. It's probably something that we take for granted, but very often when a fruit, when a piece of fruit can often look very perfect on the outside, but sometimes the process of decay is quite slow. And so when you put your bowl of fruit together, you may not notice it. You just don't wake up one morning and that apple is completely bad. This process of decay started long before you even noticed and had um, eventually rotted completely. And it's often on a hidden, in a hidden area. And you don't realize it until, you know, you pick it up and you go, oh, this is terrible. Let's throw this. Oh, look, it's affected these ones as well. So I guess it's the insidious nature of decay that it's often undetected yeah. until, you know, it's gone too far. Oh. Mm. And yes. Joe, just on that one, uh, I think this is an object lesson for us to learn today, is that we should check a bit more often what we have in the fridge there or in the storage <laughs> there to see if something is going wrong particularly when we know that uh, we have perishable stuff. And that's the thing with us as people of God. We should go back and check ourselves with the word of God, with the teachings of God a bit more often. We, we are too much just uh, following the, you know, the flow, to say so. That, that's right, Nick. And sometimes by following tradition, we have the appearance of a good, healthy apple but really our, rela- our heart is far from God. And so this is where perhaps um, some traditions uh, become a replacement for a, a genuine relationship. And in that sense, even though they have a good purpose and a, a good beginning, um, can become a detriment to us. So I guess, as you said, we need to examine ourselves, you know, pick up that apple and have a look at it. <laughs> yes. Well, they are. In the history of the Israelites, and this is recorded in the book of Numbers, as they were travelling toward Canaan, they camped along the Jordan River on the plains of Moab. Now, Moab, like many of the surrounding nations, was a heathen country. And the king of Moab was really scared because of this large group of people, probably several million, um, camped in this area. And... um, He wanted uh, these people gone or something. And there was a prophet called Balaam, and he hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. Now, Balaam tried to do it, but he couldn't. Um, And uh, the king of Moab was quite upset about this. But then something happened. And what we've been talking about with the rotten fruit has a bearing on what we're going to deal with next. Uh, Will, what happened? It's in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. Yes, that text, uh, Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3 says, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality 
with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. Would you believe that? Yes. Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. A little bit of background here, Lynn and panel and listener. Shittim is a large area in the plains of Moab, directly across from Jericho and immediately east of the Jordan and north of the Dead Sea. What is significant to me uh, in Israel's history that this was the site of the last encampment of the nation at the end of their wilderness journeys, just before crossing over Jordan into the Promised Land. Incidentally, the word shatim is wood from the acacia tree, uh, from which the furniture of the sanctuary was made. Yes. Including the very structure of the Ark of the Covenant beneath its golden covering. It's intriguing that both the place by that name and the wood making up that receptacle that held God's law should be identified together by the same name. In the place, Shittim, there was gross neglect and defiance of those very Ten Commandments. So Israel finds themselves now at leisure, at ease, after defeating the forces of the Canaanites and the Amorites and a few combined armies under the king Og of Bashan. And being at ease with time in your hands and letting down your guard can sometimes be treacherous. Our text indicates that they had pretty much settled in at Shittim for a long time before they were to, on to move into Canaan. While there, the local king, as you have said, Len, uh, King Balak of Moab, realized he could never defeat Israel militarily, never measure up to them in battle, so he sought another way to bring them down, overcome them. So he hires Balaam, an apostate prophet, to curse the people of God and prevent them from entering Canaan. But uh, the biblical record says that Balak and Balaam's intended curses end in a pronouncement of blessing over the nation of Israel. It's a miracle in itself. So what do these enemies do now? It was determined that the sure way of bringing Israel to defeat was to bring them to a moral fall and hence disrepute before their God, the Most High. To remove the powerful protection of the Lord, they said, all this right here on the borders of the promised land would be would give us success. Now, King Balak's plan, I believe, was inspired by the arch enemy of God, uh, Satan himself. A festival is arranged, laced with alcohol, frivolity, and sex. And the sad truth is that thousands in Israel venture in upon the forbidden ground and they get entangled in a snare of Satan. Let me quote from a historian about this occasion. It says, beguiled with music and dancing and allured by the beauty of heathen women, they cast off their loyalty to Jehovah and they united in mirth and feasting, indulging in wine, beclouding their senses and broke down the barriers of self-control. Passion had full sway and having recklessly defiled their consciences, they were now persuaded to bow down to idols. Yes, they offered sacrifice upon heathen altars 
and participated in the most degrading rites. You know, one Bible commentator says, it was not long before the poison had spread like a deadly infection through the camp of Israel. The very people who would have conquered their enemies in battle were now overcome by the wiles of heathen, heathen women. The people seemed to be infatuated. The rulers and, and the leading men were among the first to transgress. And so many of the people were guilty that the apostasy became national. In fact, the Bible says Israel as a whole joined himself unto Baal Peor. Len, I, I think it's hard for us to imagine that God's people could offer sacrifices upon heathen altars and participate in the most degrading rites, frolicking before an idol God. And the Bible tells us that it brought down the righteous anger of the Lord and the plague, killing 24,000 of them. You know, panel and listener, this shouts a warning message to me. We too, I believe, are on the very borders of our eternal inheritance. Fierce temptations assail us too, but we are cautioned not to disregard the counsels of God, succumbing to the intemperance and the immorality that surrounds us, as it could deprive us of a place in the promised land. Instead, may God give us victory over the evils that beset us from day to day. Thank you, Will. Brenton? Uh, there were a few, um, Will has covered it very well, uh, Len. There were, are a couple of other things that are worth mentioning. The term Baal Peor. Baal Peor was one of the Moabites' gods. The main god of the Moabites was a god called Chemosh. Now, Baal Peor was probably a local god in that particular area. What Will read from the historian is, is pretty much spot on. My own research has drawn me to the fact that Baal Peor was probably represented by something like a bull, believe it or not, seated on a latrine. That's the type of god that they were worshipping. The term Baal means owner, lord, or also husband. Now, later on in the Old Testament, we're all aware, particularly in the book of Hosea, where God repeatedly talks about, I was a husband to Israel. And so this is a flagrant disregard of God's laws. The term peor means to open wide. Now, um, Balaam's third attempt at cursing Israel was from a place called Peor. He and Balak were present at this particular. It also has other illusions that are so gross they're not worth mentioning here. But needless to say, this absolute disgusting behaviour the reason why God destroyed 24,000, the reason why we find the story of Phineas in this particular chapter is unless you nip this particular matter in the bud, it's going to develop, as we've mentioned earlier on, but it's particularly significant that some of the leading leaders of Israel were involved in this. Do you know that whenever they refer to Israel's history, Baal of Peor is mentioned more times than just about any other single event in Israel's journey to the promised land. Here they are right on the border of the promised land and they have fallen into sexual promiscuity and degradation. And I believe the lesson for us today is we are right on the borders of the promised land. How is our relationship with the Lord? How is our re relationship with one another? Are we pure in heart 
as God would have us to be. I believe it's a question we need to take seriously, Lee. I think also it's worth mentioning that this wasn't the only time that um, God's people were in danger of this. We know from our reading in Revelation that there was a message given to the church in Pergamum, and I won't read the entire message, but it says, "I nevertheless, this is in um, verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. It here points out to the fact that There was a blurring of the holy with the unholy. We know that many in the early church had to live amongst paganism. And there is always the danger when you are side by side with uh, pagan worship and unholy worship and unholy practices that it is very easy to be seduced into it. And therefore, God warns us. And I guess we're living in a very secular society where there are many practices about that are potentially very seducing and very seductive, and Satan knows all our weaknesses. So um, all our temptations are specifically geared to, you know, where we may, may find ourselves most vulnerable. And so I think it's an admonition, even for our time, that um, we be, be aware and keep holy and unholy separate in our lives. Well, Brenton has already mentioned that... Um there were 24,000 Israelites who were killed, eliminated, because of this incident. Now, I'm asking for an opinion here, Ledger. Was it fair that God allowed so many people to die because of infidelity? I think it was fair from the part of God and and from the part of, of the right, if we can understand the right of God's law, because God warned them before and give them advice to be careful. And it happened quite a few times when immorality took place. But this time, it was very high. So God had to remove, to eradicate and to eliminate the sin to stop the spread of evil. So you're saying it is fair. What would you say here, Joe? It's very difficult to know what is in the mind of God, in fact, impossible. But God has his reasons, and he obviously had to deal swiftly and decisively with this situation. And there are probably a couple of reasons for that. The first one, in to my way of thinking, is that Israel were to display God's way and showcase God's character through their character, and also they were to be different from the cultures around them. They were to be a witness to the pagan nations around them of the true God, the only God, and they were to be an example on how to worship the true God. So they were to be a light in a very dark place. The second reason that God had to stop this then and there was I think that it put the plan of salvation in jeopardy. Now, Satan knew that Um, a messiah was coming that would crush the serpent's head and he heard Balaam because every time Balak took him to a different vantage point and said look just just look at this section here and perhaps if we just hide a bit of the uh the encampment perhaps you wouldn't be so intimidated and you'll be able to curse them to my satisfaction after all I'm paying for you anyway so Balaam says that 
A scepter, a scepter would rise out of Jacob and smite the surrounding nations. Now, Satan would have seen that as, you know, his kingdom was under attack and would be annihilated. And so he threw everything he had to derail the plan, the timeline, and prevent it from happening. So we have here two reasons. One, that they completely failed in their, you know, if he didn't stamp it out, they would have completely failed to be an example in, in, in the world. And also that the very plan of salvation was put in jeopardy and um, and that was Satan's plan. He only knew what was said in Eden and along the way, but um, he had to react and he felt that this was the best way um, was to separate Israel from their God and therefore he would gain power over them and they would succumb. And he would his desire was to bring them to ruin and to die in the desert. Yep. And he nearly succeeded. Almost. Before you speak, Brenton, in my garden I've planted a number of seeds, including some beetroot. And the last time I watered them, I noticed there's quite a few little weeds that are starting to grow. What would happen to my garden, do you think, if I did not root out the weeds? Well, the answer's fairly obvious. The weeds would um, outgrow the beetroot and I would have a garden full of weeds. So God had to do something here and that meant eliminating the evil, the badness, so that um, he had only good people, obedient people. Brenton? I think uh, Joe has covered it pretty well. Thank you, Joe, for uh, your comments on that. But it's interesting that the studies that we've done so far since we've started on the book of Deuteronomy all f- seem to focus on being obedient to God's law or God's laws. Now, the original arch rebel, Satan himself, there is an interesting book called The Story of Redemption. If any of our readers are interested in getting it, maybe they should contact the station, contact Nick, and I'm sure we could put them in a, a situation where they could obtain this book. The story of redemption reveals some insights into it. The insight is that when Satan rebelled in heaven, the one thing that really got under his skin was that there was a law. They had never, the angels had never thought of a law up until now. They had obeyed God because they loved him. Satan now pointed out that there was a law and that they were governed by laws and he hated that law. What he's done down here on earth is to simply perpetuate his rebellion in heaven. He was so successful in heaven that over a third of the angels fell with him, and he certainly tried the same tactic down here. And today, it's interesting, if you read Second Thessalonians 2, it talks about the man of lawlessness right at the end of time, which is the time in which we're living. Regard for God's law, in particular his commandments, seems to be becoming less and less prominent. So Satan's work has been untiring. And the whole purpose of it, as Joe said, is to ruin mankind, to destroy them from the opportunity of having eternal life and to destroy their relationship with their maker. And I think that's something that we need to think very, very seriously about in 2021. We live in a lawless society, not just in regard to God's law, but we have seen enough evidence on social media and the media in general of how people at large are flouting the laws of the land these days, not only here but in America and other places. 
And I think that uh, they're things that we really need to take a good note of, Len, and recognise that God's laws are there for a reason. He expects them to be obeyed. And furthermore, he will give us the power to obey them because we're not able to obey them in our own strength. And eradication of evil is a vital part for the survival of God's people. You know, one little virus has killed five million people already. Yes. We are doing our best to counteract it. If we just caught it early, things would have been a lot better. Yes, good point. Well, Nick, what can we learn from this incident at Baal Peor? Yes, Lennon panel is that well-known saying that if you don't learn from the past, we are destined to repeat the same mistakes. And I wonder how can we apply what we said so far in our life today as a people of God, those who should represent the law of God and the teachings of Jesus, are we caught into this um, flow that we are making the same mistakes like Israel worshipping the Baal Pearl? I think there are a number of things, Len, that we do today, even in our churches. But in our conduct, generally, that we repeating those mistakes. I would like to say here is that we should open the Bible, not only occasionally, but very intentionally every day and learn. I'm reading right now the book of Chronicles, and I'm at the passage where the king of Israel, Ezekiel, he did wonderful things in the sight of God to pull people together and to experience the blessings of the living God. I believe today we are doing ourselves this favor that we are just going along with the things in this world, whatever happened, even with the fear of this pandemic, instead of trusting in God, giving ourselves fully to God and learn from God how to cope with all these aspects of life and with all the the temptations which are creeping into our churches and in our life, we should go back to the Bible and learn intentionally how to have a, a good attitude. All right. Be safe. Well, this links very nicely, Nick, with a verse in Deuteronomy chapter four. It's verse 4, and there's a little expression in there, Brenton. It may vary according to different versions, but would you like to pick up that verse and explain what it means and possibly the link? Okay, the verse says this in the New King James Version, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. He's contrasting... um, Len, the situation with those who followed Baal of Peor and were destroyed either by plague or by Moses' direct command, the held fast term means to follow completely. Now, it's interesting that Israel is described as holding fast to Baal Peor in another place in the Bible, which means that they had transferred their allegiance, at least some of them, from the true God 
to this false god, Baal Peor. So the link between the two is that um, the holding fast, and maybe we haven't really um, teased this one out enough, whatever it is that's got your attention is the thing that's most important in life. Here we find that in one verse, it's mentioned um, Moses is talking to those who survived Baal Peor and are about to enter the promised land. He's also reflecting on those who followed Baal Peor and held fast to him and uh, suffered the consequences the same. We know from uh, our understanding of Bible prophecy that in the last days when you talk of things like the mark of the beast and things like that, we know that there are only going to be two groups in our world. Chapter 4 and verse 4 is, But you held fast to the Lord your God, who are alive to this day, every one of you. Situation is that uh, there were those in Israel at the time of Baal Peor who held fast to the true God. There were those who had been led astray by Moabite and Midianite women. And as a result of that, they had cast off their allegiance to Jehovah totally. They had held fast to this false god. And I'm simply drawing a reference to the last days in which we live, which you find the reference in Revelation 13 and 14. You can study it for yourself. There are two groups of people, those who hold fast to God through thick and thin and those who follow the beast in his image. Our purpose in this study is not to discuss the beast in his image. It's simply to point out that the term hold fast applies just as much in 2021 as it did back then. Thank you, Brenton. Well, the uh, Israelites at Baal Peor were tempted. 24,000 of them lost their lives. Those who did not participate held fast or cleaved, as uh, is another expression, Yes, to the Lord and what he um, wanted them to do. But, of course, everyone without exception, is tempted to do wrong. Is there any help involved to keep us from sinning? And how does this relate to cleaving unto the Lord, Will? There's an encouraging text in First Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The same sort of promise then comes in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceedingly, with exceeding joy, talking of course about God and his ability. I think all the resources of heaven are ready to help us uh, against temptation. I uh, think of a little statement which I read. It would be well for us to remember that every true child of God has the cooperation of heavenly beings. Invisible armies of light and power attend the meek and lowly ones who believe the claim and claim the promises of God. Cherubim and seraphim and angels that excel in strength stand at God's right hand. All ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who has, shall be heirs of salvation. And, you know, nothing is more helpless and yet more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Saviour. 
If God would send every angel in heaven to the aid of such a one rather than allow him to overcome. You know, listeners, I can echo the promises of God that we have mighty resources of heaven to aid us when we are assailed by the evil one. He may indeed be like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but we can send him fleeing from us through the help of heaven's agencies. I'm reminding of a nice illustration, as you said, about that God uh, prepares also a way of uh, dealing with those temptations. And uh, it's empowering us to deal with that also. And this illustration is a bit like this, saying that we cannot stop the birds flying above our heads, but we can stop them making a nest on our head. Yeah. All right, well. One uh, one good thing, of course, when we're tempted is not to concentrate on that, but to to turn our attention to something else and to turn our attention to the Lord. Ken, how does prayer, reading and studying the Bible and worship and fellowship help us to cleave to the Lord? Well, Len, this, this is such an important question. Mankind is made up from two parts, the body and the spirit, as it says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we see there are two parts, both need food, the physical food for the body and the spiritual food for the spirit. If we do not feed the inner man, the spirit, by reading, studying God's word with regular praying and having fellowship with like-minded people, then we are like the branches mentioned in John 5 and verse 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. So here Jesus is telling us we are like a vine connected to life through Jesus. But if we lose that connection, we shrivel up and die. So it makes sense to cleave to God. We should stay connected to Jesus by reading and applying God's word in our lives. All right. Thank you, Ken. Well, there are two beautiful texts in Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's verses 5 and 6. These texts show the pivotal point of a happy, holy, and healthy life. Would you like to share those with us? Yes, I'll read the text. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 and 6. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Throughout scripture, it is abundantly clear that God wanted to bestow upon Israel the special privilege of being his leading representatives on earth, the head as it were and not the tail. His intention has not changed toward those today who put him first and foremost in life and worship land. Thank you, Will. Now, here it talks about wisdom. Knowledge, according to one wise saying, is for the present. Wisdom is for the future. Joe, 
what is wisdom and how does having wisdom relate to the Lord? Well, it says in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So to respect and reverence God and God's word is the beginning of wisdom. And this is how it starts. True wisdom comes from the fountain of all wisdom, which is God himself. And knowledge of the holy or understanding is spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And a, a text that accompanies that is James 1.5. And it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So there is no innate wisdom in man, not when it comes to spiritual things anyway. No. It comes from God. And this text promises that if we come to God aware of our own lack of wisdom, it says he is generous and does not find fault. So he does not find us or sorry, he doesn't send us away because we are, you know, a lost cause or we're too foolish. The verse says unequivocally, it will be given to you. Only condition is that you ask. Very encouraging, isn't it? Yes. Now we're talking about an, a nation, a great nation. And the apostle Peter actually applies this to a different people. Brenton, would you like to uh, perhaps share this with us? Uh, the Apostle Peter refers to the Christian church, which was composed of both Jews and Gentiles in these terms. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Um, Leonard has um, references back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, I will take you unto myself and you will be a special people. Then he goes on to say, we are called to be a special people for one reason, to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. What does that mean? I tell you what, we are living in a world that is very, very dark morally and becoming more and more blurry by the day as people get their values from social media rather than from their parents or the word of God, everything is becoming very blurred. And I believe that we as God's people have a responsibility to show the difference between God's character being reproduced in us and the character of those around them who are choosing other sources for their moral development. Some people may regard God's laws as a test of faithfulness. Others may consider them a burdensome set of rules to be kept or else. Others may regard them as an expression of love, that is, an expression of God's character. Yet they may be each and all of those things, but in reality they are the recipe, the blueprint, the gateway, the charter to a good life for both individuals and for a nation. Had the Israelites been faithful in observing God's laws, they would have been a great nation, a marvel and an example to surrounding nations, as happened during the early reign of King Solomon. As God's people today, we are commissioned to demonstrate and teach others the gospel message. And as they see how we are blessed with health, peace and purpose, as a result of being faithful, they may desire to have that more abundant life for themselves. Now, dear listeners, God's promises stand firm. 
If you're obedient and faithful, you too will be blessed as a part of God's kingdom. Thank you for joining us today. And before we finish, we would like to uh, have a prayer. And Lydia, would you like to just pray for us and the listeners as well? Yes, certainly. Glorious Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are our Father, a Father full of mercy, love, and grace towards us by giving us your decrees and laws full of love, full of grace, full of wisdom for our guidance and blessings and righteousness. Father, please give us a clear mind through your Holy Spirit, not to add and not to take anything from your laws and precepts to end up in transgressions as some uncommitted Israelites did it before and not repeat them again. Father, please help us to learn from these examples. Help us to follow them and uh, with all our hearts and observe them carefully in our lives and cleave unto you. We love to keep your laws and decrees written in our hearts and minds to live by them and love you with all, with all our uh, hearts and minds. And because we know, Father, that um, your law gives us wisdom and understanding and you gave them for our happiness, joy, health, um, for the purpose to become holy because you are a holy God. Father, we love to revere you in our hearts and in whatever we do, help us, Father, to do for your honor and glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Well, thank everyone for uh, your participation today. What a great study to learn about um, for what nation is there so great. And uh, I think we we learn that we should apply that to our time, that we are called to be that great nation, as Brenton just uh, said a bit earlier, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ. We are a chosen generation. Are we that great nation? Are we showing that through this uh, time of confusion? I will invite you to join us again next time, when we are about to learn a little bit more about what law and grace means. Until then, may God richly bless you and have a safe walk with Jesus.